This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. When times are tough, a lot of arts groups go for the sure thing. For orchestras, that means a Beethoven symphony cycle over Schoenberg or John Cage. For an opera house, it's Carmen and La Boheme over maybe a risky modern opera. But some companies think differently. In the face of all its hardships, New York City Opera planned a season that includes J.C. Bach's Endymione, Bartok's Bluebeard's Castle, and the U.S. premiere of Mark Anthony Turnage's Anna Nicole. So what's the proper balance? Does safe programming mean more butts in seats, or do you need to take risks even in tough times? Here to talk about this are three guests. Philip Kennicott is on the phone. He is the Pulitzer Prize-winning art and architecture critic of The Washington Post. Here in the studio are Mark Skorka, president of Opera America, a national service organization representing opera companies, and Krishna Tyagarajan, the executive director of Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. Mark, I'm going to start with you since we're in opera mode. What would you say to a company that just put out an emergency $20 million fundraising appeal and wants to present Bluebeard's Castle, Endymione, and Anna Nicole, plus The Marriage of Figaro? Is this crazy, or is City Opera onto something? In your introduction, you talked about companies thinking about programming safe pieces uh, when the economic times are challenging. And one of the issues that we've observed in the field for the last 20 years or so is that there are fewer and fewer safe pieces. Operas that used to be reliable box office producers are no longer pulling the way they used to. The two operas you mentioned, Carmen and Madama Butterfly or Carmen and Boheme, well, those three, the three surefire operas today. And after that, it is a huge risk, whatever the title is, whether it's Faust or Rigoletto. They used to be on the list of real safe operas, but they're not safe anymore. There are fewer safe harbors where opera companies can turn, which in a way is wonderfully liberating because if even some of the old war horses are no longer producing at the box office as, as they used to, then your your choices are free to program interesting work and to do your best to market it. With New York City Opera, I think their season was a very interesting one. Works that we didn't know, a new work, um, one traditional piece. It was a very, very, is a very interesting season. And the other thing that we have to be aware of in thinking about this kind of programming is audience fatigue around some of the standard repertoire. Now that so many opera companies in the United States are celebrating their 50th, 60th, 75th anniversaries, audiences have seen the standard repertoire time and time again. They want to see pieces that are new and different. The media covers pieces that are new and different. It's hard to get coverage in the Washington Post, I'm sure Philip can speak about this, uh, for another production of Carmen or La Boheme. But if there's a commission or new works, unusual works, then there's media coverage, which can lead to public interest. There's no simple answer anymore. There are very few safe harbors. And as long as there are a few safe harbors, I think companies are excited about the opportunity to program unusual repertoire. Philip, as somebody from the Washington Post, what is your reaction to that? I think it sounds like a really fascinating season. Now, 
we shouldn't pretend that it's not going to be um, a lot of heavy lifting to get people to those operas. But I would certainly go. And as a journalist, if I were working in New York, I would be proposing stories on at least three of the operas in that season because they're very interesting to me. And hopefully, Mark is right, that would generate some interest in people. You know, it's interesting that this isn't just con- you know a matter of, of opera. Even pop music groups find that audiences want their standards. They want the familiar works that they already know. So in many cases, it, it really you know, it crosses cultural boundaries. Familiarity is what makes people comfortable, and it's not necessarily confined to opera or classical music. All right, so what is the answer to the person who posted on the WQXR website saying the whole premise of city opera is popular opera and rising talent for the masses Instead, they're giving us avant-garde for the few. They don't know the history of city opera. I was going to say the same thing. And the, uh, Julius Rodale has a new memoir that's out that's very readable. And the history of city opera is rooted in unusual work, new repertoire. Yes, standard uh, repertoire as well. But the great city opera history is a, is a legacy of broad and diverse repertoire. And Lyric Opera of Chicago just got raked over the coals by local press for being too conservative this season. Is that what's worked for them? You know, I think Lyric Opera has an extraordinary history of success as a company, both artistically and financially. There's a new general director, Anthony Freud, who started just a couple of years ago with a lot of opera companies. uh, As you know, their seasons are planned years and years in advance. So we still haven't seen a full season of what Anthony Freud will bring to the company's main stage. I expect it will be a more diverse repertoire than we've seen in the last several years. And indeed, Lyric has been wrestling with um, the issues of perhaps becoming overly conservative um, at the box office. Krishna, I want to loop orchestras in here now with the whole idea of conservative versus advanced programming. How much is programming directly tied to the financial health of an orchestra? I think there is a a perception that there is a direct correlation between what you program and how your audience responds. But I think it's, it's a very difficult answer to give because it really depends on the market and it depends on how you've trained your audience. Uh, Esa Pekka Salonen did a pretty good job in Los Angeles training an audience to listen to things that may 10 years prior have been completely out of their realm of comfort zone. On the other hand, we are now talking what we were just talking about with the with the opera program here. Are we thinking that Bartok is, you know, newsworthy repertoire? Because in Europe, it's absolutely not. Bluebeard's Castle is one of the absolute standard pieces. So we have to acknowledge that the United States is moving in a completely different direction from the rest of the classical music market and the European music market is is a very large one. So again, I don't want to dodge the question, but it really depends on where you are. Um, At the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, which I can speak for, programming does affect audience behavior. In what way? Well, so you will always have a certain audience that wants to hear what they want to hear. And if you program the standards all the time, they will tell you this is boring, this is not what I want to hear. Then if you start bringing some really, really collaborative, um, breaking the mold uh, piece to the audience, you will have some people saying, well, look, this is great, but I don't want to hear this. I want my Haydn and I want my Mozart. The problem is that we are today in an environment where people are very afraid to take risk. 
And the reason they're afraid to take risk is largely because the funding isn't there to back it up. When you're being very creative and you're breaking the mold, you have to know that that's an area in which you need to invest. The payoff will not be immediate. So if you can't do this over the course of many years, you have to understand that if you get a, an initial poor reaction from your audience, that if you just pull right back, you don't know what the full effect was. If Eza Pekasalonen, after his first season, had gone back to only the standard works and never pushed through what he wanted to do, Los Angeles would be a different audience than what it is today. I, I really agree with the notion of nurturing and developing your audience I like to talk about the fact that I think there's an audience that enjoys going to the theater to recognize what they already know, and there's an audience that enjoys going to the theater to discover something new. And audiences self-select. Um, if you are someone who enjoys recognizing what you know, you will go to a performance of Carmen. If you are someone who enjoys discovering something new, you might buy a ticket to see uh, uh, one Anna of the Nicole. opera productions, <laughs> Anna Nicole in, in Brooklyn, or one of the productions at the Armory, because you know that the Armory will always look different. It'll never look the same way, so it's going to be a discovery about how they'll they'll set it up. And oh, you, you can change your audience over time and bring in more people who enjoy discovery. It's not something you can do overnight. 25 years ago, when American opera companies were experimenting with new works, they would do very traditional operas, one, two, three, and then bring in a world premiere of a very angular, challenging work. The audience didn't like it, not because the work wasn't good, but it was so different from the recognition experience that they had had all of their lives. So we do have to look at expanding enriching audience sensibilities over time, not overnight. And some companies carry with them an audience that is accustomed to the delights of discovery. New York City Opera has been one of those companies. Philip, in the Department of the Self-Selecting Audience, you just wrote a big piece for the New Republic on the state of American orchestras. And one of the things you talked about was that many of them are trying to target highly diverse audiences with niche programming video game nights, the Texas tenors, the Indigo Girls with your symphony orchestra. Would you like to comment on the self-selecting thing and how programming goes? Well, the, the piece I wrote for the New Republic was really meant to put on record my personal experience. And as it turned out, after that piece ran, I heard from a lot of people and realized that, that what I was feeling and, and thinking was kind of my own idiosyncratic reaction is in fact shared fairly widely. And that is that there is a niche of that audience, which I call the serious listener, that needs to be taken more seriously. Orchestras very often think that, that their audience falls into two categories. There's a kind of conservative old audience that only wants Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn, and then there is this ideal audience that's younger and is basically interested in everything. And what I argue is that there is, in fact, another audience in there, which I call the, the serious listener, who's actually quite open to, to a lot of things, open to new music, to new pieces, open to obscure pieces from the standard repertoire, interested still in, in the traditional repertoire, and that they're not actually being very well served because we're not thinking about their needs very much. The, the fear, the kind of panic response of um, reflexively programming familiar works that you see in orchestras actually doesn't serve the serious listener very well either. How does the notion of subscriptions play into all of this and selling subscriptions? And can people even sell subscriptions anymore? That's one of the big changes structurally in the way that people are consuming classical music. 
for a long time, decades, uh, subscriptions gave orchestras and, and opera companies a great deal of stability, and they spread the risk around so that if you, say, bought an opera subscription for five shows, one of them might be Moses and Aaron by Schoenberg, and the other three or four might be fairly popular operas. But you owned all five of those tickets, and so you had a sense, let's go in here, and, it, and people would go and, and explore things that they might necessarily not have bought a ticket for if, if offered as an individual thing. That model's been breaking down, and orchestras in particular are forced to devote more and more resources to selling individual tickets. In, in one case, one uh, expert I spoke with said that it was three and a half times as expensive for an orchestra to sell a single ticket than it would be to sell that same ticket as part of a subscription package. Um, so they're chasing individual listeners much more aggressively and at a greater cost, and that's having a real impact on the orchestra's bottom line. Krishna, you've got an orchestra. What do you say to that? Well, I, I say that uh, Philip raises a, a number of good points, but I think different orchestras are acting differently. So some of the large orchestras will fall into the category that Philip just described. Orpheus Chamber Orchestra is a much smaller and more nimble orchestra. It's a per-service orchestra. For us, subscriptions are up by 9% over last year. Single tickets are up by 32% over last year. Now, Have so you had to market harder to get those? We had to actually cut our marketing budget because we needed to save some money because we wanted to produce balanced budgets, and we are producing balanced budgets. Marketing and programming are two separate things. So programming, you need to have something that is attractive. That, that's issue number one. Why is it attractive? Because when you get on stage and you play it, you play it the best way you know how. You have to be really good at what you do. The marketplace is so competitive today, you have to be the best at what your niche is. The other is that a lot of people are saying this isn't working because we put Bartok on or we can't sell the Mahler, but we can sell the Rachmaninoff. We can sell the Beethoven, but we – sometimes you have to look at the process management involved as to how are you approaching your audience and are you actually interacting with your audience. Just sending out a big old mailing campaign isn't going to do it anymore. You have to become really smart and you have to actually know who the people are that will come to you. So, Mark, what – I want you also to answer the subscription question. What have, have how have subscription sales or lack thereof changed? Well, over the long term, there's no doubt that subscription sales have shrunk. Absolutely, uh, we do data analyses at Opera America over the last 25 years, and we just watched the diminution of the subscription sales as a piece of the, the puzzle. Philip's description of the theory is completely correct that it provided a kind of stability or predictability to ticket sales. And uh, it is absolutely the case that it is less expensive to sell tickets on subscription than, than buy single tickets. Um, a research report I read recently just talked about the fact that our public these days, they value flexibility over loyalty. And I think in years past, people were loyal to an organization. I love the blankety-blank symphony or I love the blah-bitty-blah opera company, so I'll buy my subscription. Today, there are so many choices. So people are valuing flexibility. They are curating their own cultural lives. They're no longer allowing big institutions to curate their lives. They pick and choose. So I think that's just something we have to live with. Absolutely correct, recognizing how do we promote it? How do we communicate about it? I don't think there is a single audience. It's not about the opera audience. There are opera audiences. I use it in plural. There's the opera audience for traditional opera done in a traditional way or traditional opera done in a non-traditional way. 
or non-traditional repertoire. These days, opera companies are performing opera in non-traditional venues. So it is a, a new reality out there where one has to make sure the programming is compelling and compellingly performed and that the communications is, uh, strategy is very effective. Philip, one of the things you wrote in your article, you took issue with the fact that video game nights aside, orchestra programs all look the same. You cited over-reliance on star soloists and more repetition of a handful of over-familiar concertos. But hasn't that always been somewhat true with orchestra programming? Well, you know, one of the people I interviewed for that piece was Tom Morris, who was the head of the Cleveland Orchestra for many years and who's now uh, at the Ojai Festival, which really is a model of interesting programming. And his comment to me was very striking, that orchestras and their conductors used to stand for something, that there used to be a kind of a flavor or a feeling or a definite identity that you got from an orchestra. So if perhaps the Philadelphia and the Chicago Symphony were performing repertoire that was relatively close, there was still a very clear sense of those being different orchestras, playing it as, as uh, Mark mentioned, you know, playing it in a different way, having a different take on it. The sameness that I'm worried about in many American orchestras extends beyond simply whether or not they're going for the same sort of variety nights and targeted festivals and galas and all of that. Um, it has to do with what they sound like as well. Well, doesn't that date back to a time when music directors like Ormandy or Schulte would stay with an orchestra for years and years, and that just isn't so much the case anymore? Absolutely. And these things have long, um, you know, all of these issues have long histories. We, we haven't arrived suddenly at the moment that we're at. This has taken us um, decades to get to this point. Has programming gotten more conservative? One of the things that I did in preparation for the New Republic piece was to look at a lot of orchestra programs online and also gathering up when I attended an orchestra gathering. And it sure seems to me that when it comes to this kind of parsing down the audience to these events like the Indigo Girls, there's a lot of repetition of those kinds of events happening, um, especially at the smaller civic orchestras, you know, the, the orchestras that, that really represent the city and have long histories and they have their own concert hall, um, not orchestras, for instance, like Orpheus, but at the civic orchestra. But those are the ones where you see, paradoxically, the chasing after individual listeners leads to a kind of homogenization of the programming. One the bit, bit of research that we've done at Opera America, and I don't know whether this observation would pertain to symphonies. We, of course, because the opera repertoire is a fairly limited one compared to the symphonic repertoire, which is vast, we're able to track the frequency of performances by opera title very easily. And what we've seen is a great stability in what the top 10 operas are from this year, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. The real change is in the next 10 or the next 20, so that the very upper-level, most frequently performed repertoire, same titles. A hugely different mix in titles number 11 through 30. So I don't know whether that pertains in the symphony field, but certainly in opera, the creative churn is reflected in the middle and the upper-middle part of the repertoire list, not yet at the very top of the repertoire list. How much of a strain is it on an opera company to do something contemporary on, as opposed to another Carmen? A strain on the cast, the orchestra, and even the audience? I wouldn't use the word strain necessarily. Most of our companies find it extremely rewarding 
It is wonderful to have a live composer and librettist who can speak about their work, um, who can interact with the singers. It's wonderful for the artists to create roles for the first time in their lives and not to do just another Carmen they know so well. The education program, the PR department, the marketing department, they really switch into a kind of engaged overdrive when they have a new work that has contemporary resonance and living creative artists. So it's a real boost for the company. It may sometimes be more expensive because that contemporary opera requires a new set. It requires more rehearsal time because the musicians and choristers don't know the music. It requires more staging time because the singers are doing it for the first time. So there may be a financial challenge to doing the new or unusual work, but usually the creative thrust of the effort is rejuvenating for the organization. I would amplify that with an experience I had this summer, the Santa Fe Opera. I was uh, out there to listen to the full five-opera season, and I had family members along, so I was buying tickets. And I naturally assumed that the Mozart Marriage of Figaro and the Verdi La Traviata would be the hard nights to get tickets for. Uh, Those would be the big nights that were crowded and packed and a lot of excitement. It, It turned out to actually be just the other way around. It was a relatively rare opera by Rossini and a new opera um, by Theodore Morrison, those were the nights that it was hard to get seats for, and those were the nights that the house really felt alive. Christian, with regard to Philip's experience out in Santa Fe, what did you at Orpheus learn about butts in seats from the new Brandenburg project last season or the Project 440 commissions that Orpheus did the season before? I don't think we saw really significant changes in in audience behavior if you're looking at the numbers per se. So if you're looking at subscriptions versus single tickets, you can't see something suddenly falling off because that piece is on the program and suddenly shooting up because the other piece is on the program. Specifically, I mean, I wasn't there for the Brandenburgs, by the way. I have to be honest about this. So I can only talk about the numbers. But what I was there for last season was the Wayne Shorter um, was the Anna Kiko Myers featured concert, uh, the Richard Good concert, and the Gabe Kahane, which was paired very daringly with uh, Schoenberg, Verklärte Nacht. And I have to say that um, while some subscribers felt that maybe the one or the other piece is a little too daring for them, they weren't so comfortable with it, um, most of them came for everything. And we had strong responses from single-ticket buyers who wanted to hear this kind of experiment and see how it goes. Now, moving forward, you see the next season looking more like Beethoven and Mozart and Handel. And that's not because we're retreating. That's because we want to finish the Beethoven cycle that we started a few years ago. Brad Meldau is opening this program. And I can't talk about it in detail because I'm not allowed to give away what we're doing yet because we haven't fully uh, contracted all of it. But you'll see diversity in in thought and and programming will continue at Orpheus. It's so fascinating to hear Krishna speaking about it because you can do a new and contemporary work that is between a Beethoven piece and a Brahms piece all in one evening. Uh, In opera, when you're doing something new or unusual, it is the evening. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Unless you're doing something like the new Gotham program coming up, which is a bunch of little stuff. Absolutely. I guess you can get away with two one-acts or three one-acts. So um, if, if our hypothetical opera company is doing four productions, that's four pieces. And if someone comes to see a new opera by a composer they don't enjoy, well, they're not going to enjoy the entire evening. So um, it, it is a plunge into risk, 
But we were talking earlier about the risk factor, and it can be as risky to program Carmen too often as it can be to program something that is perhaps completely unknown. So um, as I was saying earlier, there is no safe harbor. Can, can I just jump in with one thing? Because uh, Philip spoke about the homogenization of programming, that you hear the same people across the country playing the same pieces. I think he's on to something there, but I think there's a bigger picture that needs to be uh, addressed as well. We have a homogenization of the consumption behavior of our population. It doesn't matter if you're in Little Rock or in New York City or in Los Angeles or in Indianapolis or in Chicago. You can buy the same clothes. You can drink the same type of coffee. You can go to the same brand name store to buy your organic groceries. Um, you watch the same television shows. There's almost no locally produced content available to you anymore on television. And in fact, uh, with the exception of public radio, uh, national radio is produced somewhere in a small place and then piped all across the, you know, and you think there's a local announcer and it's not. It's somebody sitting in San Jose or San Diego and you're sitting in Little Rock, Arkansas. So there, there is something going on in this country at large and I think what's happening in the art scene is it's a symptom. There's not a cause here. What, what we're reflecting the symptoms of what's going on on a larger scale. Philip, what's your reaction to that? I, I'm so glad that Krishna mentioned that because I think it, that is absolutely an important thing to have out there. You know, in my own industry, um, which is I'm a, I'm a newspaper journalist, the Washington Post has been thinking long and hard about how we survive in a very difficult media world. And one of the things that we've talked about over and over again is that there's a homogenization in the media, homogenization in newspapers. And if we keep writing and chasing the same stories and, and basically producing something very similar to what you can get in 5, 10, 15, 20 different places um, around the Internet, we're doomed. We have to actually find stories that our resources and our abilities let us do in a way that nobody else can do. That's the hope, and that, that will actually bring us new audiences. And I think there are audiences out there. I call them countercultural audiences that are really eager for stuff that doesn't fit that homogenized cultural model. And that's the great hope of any organization that's producing live art. And I would just like to point out that as nonprofit organizations, we have a responsibility to reflect on being forces against homogenization, that we are not a for-profit business. We are not the pop culture. We are not mass media. We are the nonprofit world and have some responsibility to expand the sensibilities, to enrich the lives of the people who partake in our, in our offerings. So um, associated with that nonprofit status, I think, is that responsibility to consider your point of view, your unique identity, and to produce and promote with fidelity to that point of view. So to wrap things up a little bit, where are we headed, do you think, as audiences who were used to buying subscriptions and going regularly to the symphony and the opera get older and are no longer able to go to the symphony and the opera? Do you think that the trends we've been talking about are only going to accelerate and get more so? I don't know that the trends are going to accelerate across the board. I know that if you want to survive as an organization, you have to be nimble and you have to be flexible. I know that the changes we are going through as a country, as a society, are quicker than they used to be. And as an orchestra, you have to respond to that. But at the same time, 
the one determining factor that keeps you in business is that when you play, when you show up on stage, unless you're giving it everything you've got and you're playing the best possible performance you can play, unless you are excellent in every sense of the word, you're going to find it very difficult to stay in business because the business requires that kind of discipline, devotion, and determination. And that, to me, is is a subject we're really not talking about too much at this point, not in our society for sure, not on the big p- picture level, and we're not talking about it in the arts all that much. The proliferation of arts in America has been a wonderful thing. But keeping the standards at a very high level seems to be a difficult conversation to have. I fear that we're heading towards a future in which there's a great deal of stratification in the art that's available to people. That in places like New York and maybe Chicago and San Francisco and L.A. and and I hope Washington, um, there will be options and the sort of serious, interested, engaged um, arts goers will gravitate to the institutions that meet their needs, that do interesting work. In other places, a lot of institutions will simply go the way that many newspapers have gone. They'll become thinner and less interesting and fewer people will read them, and they'll enter into a kind of slow extinction cycle. And the end result will be, as in so many different ways in our society, there will be people who... Um, have a lot of resources and a lot of engagement and a lot of ability to, to get to nourishing art, and there'll be a lot of people left out. Mark, given that we started with City Opera and what to many people looks like that slow extinction cycle going on, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Oh, my goodness. It is always so intimidating to come after Philip wraps up. I, th- I think more and more opera companies are awakening to the fact that they have to program in a more interesting way, produce their operas in a more interesting way, consider alternative venues, multiple venues, um, look at programming that spans the entire 400 years of the repertoire. I think the New York City opera situation, as regrettable as it is, doesn't have a lot to do with programming. It has a lot to do with financial issues over the last decade. I would say more opera companies will seek to look like the programming uh, that you see at City Opera this year, uh, but hopefully they will be able to do it on a strong financial foundation, which City Opera currently has unfortunately not been able to establish. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were Philip Kennicott from The Washington Post, Mark Skorka of Opera America, and Krishna Tyagarajan of Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.